All right, everybody, welcome. Thank you for being here. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, and if you would like, uh, you can get out your phone and scan the code on the screen. It will take you to the church website where you can download the sermon notes. And uh, I will tell you, we are covering a lot of material today. And uh, if you want to just get those downloaded, it might make it easier. You can always go to the church website, by the way, click on sermons. And uh, they are there in reverse order. So whatever is the most recent sermon, the notes will be there. Lord willing, I'll also have the audio put up later today. We'll see. Uh, But I wanted to address a few things today related to the Word of God. And if you are like many in our evangelical churches now, you are hearing people say things like, well, how do you know that the books of the Bible are the right ones? What if there's other ones we missed? What if these shouldn't be there? Uh, Isn't it just hearsay, right? We've heard these things. Uh, If you ever listen to the Joe Rogan podcast, I'm neither recommending nor not recommending it. Um, He is really interesting. Um, And it's interesting, anytime he has someone on there that makes a claim of faith in Christ, he has a tendency to ask about, like, like, so what do you think of the Bible? Like, I mean, do you think it's like real? Like, doesn't it seem like it's just oral tradition passed down? And it's interesting because he's a smart guy, but he's not knowledgeable of this. It's kind of been interesting to see when he's had faithful believers on there that were intellectually trained and actually could spar with him a little bit. But I've noticed there are many who have the assumption the wrong assumption that God's word kind of just came to us accidentally or that somehow what we have here may or may not be legit and that we're just kind of blindly accepting it by faith. I want you to have an understanding of how we got our word so that you can trust it. Here's the other thing that I will tell you. There are many going about in these days saying things like, well, hey, God told me dot, 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 dot. And sometimes, I will tell you, it's meant in a good way. Sometimes it's God gave them some direction, and I say, praise the Lord. I would maybe say, don't use that wording, but it's, it's usually not heresy. And then there are those who are going around saying, hey, I am an apostle or I'm a prophet, and this is what the word of the Lord is for you, and they give you something that, wow, it might sound a little scary and might even be a problem. And so what I want to do today is give us an understanding of God's word, of God's revelation, so that you can look with confidence to scripture and also have an understanding of how to respond when someone says, hey, God told me this. Everybody with me? Cool. Here we go. So first things, we need to explain a couple of categories. Whenever we're talking about revelation from God, we tend to put it in two categories. There is general revelation and there is special revelation. General revelation is essentially what is happening in nature. Uh, it can be just the natural world. It can be humans. We know that God, God has created us in his image. Um, and it can be providence of God working things out in the world. It can be how his plan is working out. It's the things that are happening non-miraculously in the world or the world itself. And we can look at it and we can get some knowledge, right? This is what we see in Romans chapter 1 where God says that you know, the heavens are declaring his glory. You can look to the skies and you can see the order and beauty and know that he is real. Make sense? You guys are with me. Special revelation is distinct from this. Special revelation can be direct communication from God. It can be miracles. Or I would argue that the ultimate special revelation is Jesus Christ himself because he is God in the flesh. And so when you understand we're we're talking about these things, both of them are from God and they are cohesive and coherent. 
right? So when someone is engaged in the scientific method, what they're doing is they are studying God's general revelation, if they're going about it in a proper sense. We called theology the queen of the sciences because it was the foundation upon which any other science could be accomplished because you had to start with the idea that God created the world and it's a world of order. However, you can't quite get the gospel from studying plants. We need special revelation from God. And so I want to draw us to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10, as Paul is writing to his protege Timothy in Ephesus. Now keeping in mind, Paul has discipled in Ephesus, he's done this work, now he's set Timothy in there, essentially as the church planter, I think you could say. Maybe you could argue he's the first bishop, whatever you want to say, he's, he's the guy that's getting everything else going now that Paul has started that church. Paul writes to him and says this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let's stop there just for a moment. Paul has communicated the fact that he has tried to teach the word. He's, tried to, he's like, Timothy, you saw it happen, man. I got abused. I got persecuted. But you were with me while I was trying to live faithfully. Cool. He says, however, Timothy, people are going to go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, interesting. He's saying there will be impostors, false teachers, bad actors who themselves may be deceived so they might be speaking everything they're speaking, maybe even thinking they're correct. In all sincerity, they could be telling you things that are flat lies. And he says, deceiving and being deceived. The implication is, Timothy, watch out. This is what's going to happen in the church. Be ready for it. So we might be tempted to say, all right, well, what was God going to tell Timothy to do to stand against this? Uh, would we expect him to say, all right, well, Timothy, so you need to pray that God gives you unique revelation so that you can be guided miraculously on how to respond. He doesn't really tell him that. He doesn't say, Timothy, you need to have really intense experiential worship services uh, so that people are tearful and obedient. He doesn't say that. What he says is this. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, a little important fact about Timothy, uh, he was raised by a believer. Uh, of course, it was before Christ had come on the scene, right? But he was raised by faithful, a Jewish faithful mother, as we understand, and probably his mother and grandmother would have been teaching him Old Testament scripture. And Paul is saying, listen, those Old Testament scriptures, although they didn't call it Old Testament then, they just called it scripture, right? Those scriptures are what you need to make you wise to salvation. In other words, people are going to deceive and be deceived and they're going to go on causing problems, but you can know the truth from Scripture. Make sense? And then he says this. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
you might notice here I have a little thing in the margin. Uh, some of your translations might say all scripture is inspired of God. Um, that's what a lot of translations say. It's not a bad word at all. But what do we think of when we think of inspired? <clears throat> what comes to mind? <clears throat> yeah. Like inspired, like this is cool. Like I might be inspired to get a task done. Um, or if you're into writing music, you're like, man, I got inspired to write this song. It was like I got a good idea that I ran with, right? That is not the term in Greek. And, and I'll just tell you, we got a couple of times where Paul is writing in the New Testament and he actually kind of makes up a word by pushing a couple of words together. He makes a compound word and we just don't have a word for that in English. So it gets a little tricky for the translators on this. The word here is theanustos. And the, it is essentially two words put together. It's the word for God, theos, and then the word for breath or spirit. So the best translation is you kind of have to say it in two words. But what he's saying is all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, there's some implications in this we're going to go into in a little bit of detail in just a moment. But that goes beyond mere just kind of an idea that God gave these people. The idea is that the very words of scripture are God's words. So keeping in mind, Paul is warning Timothy that false teachers are going to be deceived and cause deception. And thus he reminds scripture, he reminds Timothy to hold fast to scripture, that that's going to be the answer. Not experiential worship services, not falling out in the spirit, not, you know, healing services, right? It's the scripture is going to keep you grounded. So I need to make a little comment on a doctrinal view we hold at the church here. Um, it is called the verbal plenary inspiration view of Scripture. Uh, essentially means that the language of Scripture, verbal, that doesn't mean necessarily out loud, it just means the words. Uh, the language of Scripture throughout the whole Bible, plenary means whole, essentially. And notice he says all Scripture, right, is breathed out by God. So the idea is that all of Scripture is the very word of God throughout the whole of the Bible. Makes sense? And that's where we get this term, inspiration. So I, I need to point out a couple of things in this, because there are some false views of inspiration that we need to understand against. You might hear somebody say, well, you know, I believe some parts of Scripture are like really, really, really God's word, and others are just kind of less so. Um, there are those who hold to what would maybe be called... Um, well, I guess that's the best one for it. The, they'll call themselves red-letter Christians. Well, they'll say, well, I believe all of the parts that Jesus actually said, but the rest of it's just kind of meant, it's, it's nice, but it's not really true, or it's not, it's not really as important. Well, keeping in mind, Paul is saying, as the other writers of Scripture do, that all of Scripture is God's very word. That would mean that the parts in red, if you have a red-letter Bible, the parts written by Jesus, are no more God's word than the rest of it, and all of the parts in black and white are no less God's word than the red letters because it's all God's word. The verbal, plenary view of inspiration. It's biblical, brothers and sisters. Um, just for the sake of clarity, we're not going to go through all of these. Some believe in what's called the conceptual view. They believe that, like, well, only the concepts of Scripture is, uh, is inspired and, you know, people just kind of ran with it. Uh, partial inspiration is where they're like, well, we think this part and that part, but not all of it. Right. Um, or there's another one that sounds really good, but is actually false. And it's the mechanical dictation theory. And in the mechanical dictation theory, the view is that God essentially just calls the writers to go into a trance and they just wrote out kind of like, 
in this rote manner the, the text of Scripture. Well, that's not exactly right either because we know God is using the personalities and writing styles of the writers. In fact, you need to be careful with this illustration, but in a similar, not the same way, that Jesus is truly God and truly man, we could say of the text of Scripture, it is truly God's word and truly inscribed by the human authors. And the human author's style and personality is all coming through while every word is indeed God's word. Peter talks about this in a little bit more detail. In 2 Peter 1, I shouldn't say more detail, but in a with a different emphasis. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own, someone's own interpretation. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice, the language here is that the writers of Scripture are somehow carried along, like the Holy Spirit is supervising, more than supervising, superintending this process in a miraculous way, and that it's not exactly their will that's getting this done. God's working through them to make sure that every word is the very word of God. Cool? All that makes sense? There should be some miraculous in it, because it's miraculous. Carrying on, uh, I'll just point out again in verse 16 of, uh, of 2 Timothy chapter 3, when it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for, and he lists these things, teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, Paul's implication here is that since scripture is the very word of God, not just the ideas, not just the concepts, since all of it is the very word of God, it has some uses. And he lists these four things. He says for teaching, which would be essentially just doctrine, right? We're communicating the truth of scripture. Scripture is valuable for teaching, for telling you what is true. Uh, second, for reproof. The idea of reproof has to do with rebuking. So this could be rebuking sin or it could be rebuking false teaching or false beliefs. It's like, hey, scripture is telling you where you are wrong here. But also, it is valuable for correction. The idea of correction is that like something is being put right again. So not only is it helpful to say, here's where you're wrong, it's helpful to say, here's how to get right, both as it relates to sin and as it relates to doctrine. And then he says, for training in righteousness, the idea of developing spiritual maturity. Now, can I just pause for a moment and say, would this indicate that we need anything else for Christian living? I mean, is there anything not covered here? There's nothing not covered related to your spiritual walk here. Now, we're going to address some other things because could we maybe say, I mean, is there anything here covered in how an architect is to design a bridge? Well, no. Scripture doesn't cover that. Uh, does it cover how to set a bone when it's broken? No, not at all. But it does say that we are equipped for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. If, I, if my goal is spiritual maturity, if my goal is to do the good work that I am called to in ministry, or as a faithful servant of God, everything I need is in Scripture. But we need to acknowledge, we'll talk about this more in a minute, 
Scripture is not going to tell me how to set a bone or how to do a good sales call or how to build a building because it's not designed to cover those things. More on that later, and I know that's my famous line, but I promise we're planning to come back to that. So next chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, I charge you, therefore, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Notice there's a little bit of a callback to what he's saying Scripture will do in in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So notice this. When someone is no longer willing to endure false or endure faithful doctrine, what do they use as their motivator for finding teachers? Anybody notice it? Their own desires. Can we acknowledge something real about Scripture? If I am reading the Word of God faithfully, and if the Holy Spirit is in me and doing His work, I will often see where I fall short. And it is uncomfortable. Um, It can, in fact, be devastating at times. But Scripture works in me to remind me that I am not God, uh, that I am, nor am I perfect in my obedience, And thus, I need God, I need a Savior, I need the gospel. But if I'm going to search after teachers who are going to tell me what I want to hear, what kinds of things do you think I might be looking for them to say? It's okay to fill in the blank. Someone to excuse my sin? Okay. Anything else? Ah, whatever makes me feel comfortable either in my sin or just in general? Yeah. Things that don't cause, like, a godly conviction? Anything that does not lead to conviction, I'm going to have a tendency to like. Isn't it nicer to hear someone say, we checked you out, you got no cancer, you're fine, than it is to hear someone say, we got a big problem, you've got cancer, and here's how we're going to have to treat it, and it's going to not be easy, but we're going for it, and this is what's going to save your life. Uh, one of them sounds a lot nicer to hear, doesn't it? Uh, one of them loves. One of them will tickle my ears. One of them will make me feel better about myself, and the other one is harder to hear, yet is what I need. I don't want the dentist to tell me I have a cavity and we're going to have to drill, but it just might be the reality. Following along, so <clears throat> what you will notice here is that those who are following after false teaching are not doing so based on the truth of Scripture. They don't like the sound doctrine that comes from Scripture, and so they're seeking after other things. So one of the doctrines that we uphold here at the church that is a faithful doctrine throughout church history, at least among the faithful, it's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The idea that everything I need to know for spiritual growth is here. Now, there might be other things that are useful but not necessary. For instance, we have a statement of faith. Uh, We hold to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It is useful, it is helpful as a simplification of what we believe from Scripture, but it's not essential, right? if If we'd never heard of the London Baptist Confession, if I never put up a statement of faith on our website, we'd still be okay with Scripture. 
right? Um, we go through, I do a systematic theology class that I teach. It is helpful and yet not essential. Everybody with me on that? Cool. All right, so we'll just give a brief warning here. Uh, there are those who are going about telling things that we want to hear, like you will always be healthy, you will always be wealthy, that your sin is okay. Or a popular one right now, when we read about times when God commanded the wholesale killing of an entire culture in the Old Testament, how many people want to wince at that and say like, ah, we don't believe that. So you have a guy like Andy Stanley coming along saying like, well, we're kind of unhitching the New Testament from the Old Testament. We don't really, you know, that's just a different thing. And we're not really wanting to associate ourselves with that. It's being ashamed of God's word. And it's an easier thing to swallow. And yet we have to acknowledge there were times where God said, this people is so wicked and I'm going to destroy them, but I'm God and I can do it, right? What God does is always just. Carrying on. So I want to point out a few characteristics of scripture as we move on. Given that it is God's very word, it is inerrant. Uh, passages like Psalm 119, uh, let's see, Proverbs 35, John 17, 17, Matthew 22, 29, and others give this indication that the word of God is perfect. It is without error. Uh, and so I can trust it, not just because some guy told me, but because it is the very word of God, I can trust it to have authority and be correct. Uh, similarly, as a result of the inerrancy or as, or as a result that it's from God, it does have authority. Uh, someone tried to tell me one time, well, like the Holy Spirit trumps scripture. And I'm like, what an insane thing to say. It's like saying God's word trumps is not, I mean, somehow God trumps his word. Like how, how odd to say something like that. And you'll see people who love to create doctrinal problems love to create false dichotomies. Like it's, an, it's a nonsense statement to say that God trumps his word. His word is his command. There's, it's cohesive and together. I don't need to worry about them being in contrast with each other. So when we talk about the authority of scripture, we really do believe it's authoritative because it's from God's word. We could study things in the general revelation. They'd be true, they'd be good and wonderful. Uh, but in so much as my understanding of reality might be limited or inhibited by my fall, by my sin nature, I have to always trust scripture to trump. Make sense? Cool. We all already talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, another characteristic of Scripture we see in Ephesians 6 and Romans 10 is its animation. Uh, Romans 10 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. There is something that is life giving about the Word of God in that it can bring about, by the work of the Holy Spirit and by its hearing, faith in the believer. It can make your spirit alive, it can build up your spirit. There is something about it. I love Lord of the Rings. I can read Tolkien. I can read all kinds of great novels, and it's cool, and I'm encouraged. But when I read Scripture, something else happens because it gives life to my spirit. It's a whole other thing than anything else. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's wonderfully created. It is artistic beyond anything else. But those are not the things that are really what it's about. It's that it's God's very word, and it builds faith in me. Similarly, we believe in its preservation and endurance. Psalm 119 and Matthew 24, 1 Peter 1, give this language of scripture enduring forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. It will never not be his word. It will never deteriorate. It will never cease to be as much his word as it is now. It endures forever. Last thing, we hold to the doctrine of what is called perspicuity. Uh, it's a word we don't use very much. 
Uh, it kind of means clarity, but a little bit more than that. Perspicuity is the idea that it, the scripture is not this puzzle that you have to decode to figure out what it means. Uh, I like to say that uh, scripture is like reading T.S. Eliot. Has anybody read, read T.S. Eliot other than Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats? Nobody's read T.S. Eliot. Some of us have read T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot is a brilliant, brilliant writer. And when you're reading T.S. Eliot poetry, it's complicated. You get kind of what he's talking about generally, but it gets a little confusing. He has all of these illusions and all of this art. I mean, it's complicated, right? I would say scripture very similarly has all of these illusions. It has all of this beauty. It has all of this structure. And yet a child can read it and get the main points that it's getting at. A child can read it and understand the gospel. And yet... A scholar of scripture can study and find all kinds of beauty and complexity. So when we talk about perspicuity, it doesn't mean that you are going to understand every word all the time, but you're going to understand the message of scripture. It is this idea that it's not just clear, but that it is understandable. Cool. All this making sense, I'm doing a big systematic theology here, and hopefully it's helpful um, because we're going to get into a little bit more that hopefully is of use to you. Um, I'm going to address a couple of problems, though, that come up related to how we use Scripture. Uh, one would be overemphasizing tradition. And I'll tell you right now, I know we have some, like, former slash maybe even current Catholics, and so I am always, always want to be gentle because I believe we have brothers and sisters that are in the Roman Catholic Church. But I have real concern with Roman Catholic doctrine. All right? And so I'm going to just point something out. If you look to... Um, this is not, I'm not affirming this in this quote, but the, Catholic, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 97, says sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God. Notice what he's saying, that tradition and scripture together make up the deposit of the word of God. Is that what 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 17 says? Not at all. And with respect to the value of tradition... Um, I can't say that tradition is on the same level of authority as Scripture. Now, I will point out we have plenty of times where um, we would say that tradition does have value, but not at the level of Scripture. Uh, if you look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15 and 1 Corinthians 11.2, they refer to traditions, but these seem to be the traditions of the creeds of the gospel that were being passed down. Everybody with me on that? Making sense? Um, can we just also say that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for caring more about tradition than by the word of God? All right, now, in case some of you all are really excited to be punching left at the Catholics, um, could I point something else out? If I go to an independent fundamentalist Baptist church right now, all right, yeah, um, you will find a very similar emphasis on tradition. Uh, in other words, I, I know of those who would say, if you were led to the Lord with someone using a version of scripture other than the King James Version, they would say, you're not saved. Uh, if a woman would show up wearing pants to church, uh, they would maybe be concerned that she had lost her salvation and needed to repent and wear a skirt. Um, I'm not really exaggerating, right? And I, can we just say, this happens, I've seen similar things in Nazarene and Wesleyan things. Can I also say, I mean, we're Reformed Baptist, you guys, but I, I will tell you, there are little traditional things that we can start having sneak in that I'm like, uh, tradition's okay, but be careful not to emphasize that too much. Can we just say that we all are in error of emphasizing our tradition too much? Can we also say, well, we're going to talk about that in a second. Can we also say that sometimes we neglect faithful tradition that is still good? More on that later. I mean, it, I know I've said it like three times today. 
Another problem we run into sometimes related to scripture is the overemphasis on experience. Uh, I'm going to quote someone else, and I'm not recommending them. I'm quoting them to say, hey, here's a problem. Uh, But Bill Johnson, in his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, on page 76, he says, none of us have a full grasp of scripture. Well, is that a true statement? I mean, it is, but didn't we just mention that? But, but still, like, we have the doctrine of perspicuity. Like, I understand generally what it says. He says, uh, says, but we all have the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, okay, cool. He is our common denominator who will always lead us into the truth. And I'm like, well, that's true. But, man, now you're making it sound like we don't have Scripture. Scripture is something we do have that is authoritative and clear. Why are you crying, trying to create some kind of a division between Scripture and the Holy Spirit? He says, but to follow him, we must be willing to follow off the map, to b- go beyond what we know. To do this successfully, we must recognize his presence above all. That's a little weird, right? Now, could we say that like this could be said in a certain way and be like, hey, this would be okay, but just, there's just this little bit of something's not right here. Do I really recognize the Holy Spirit's presence above all over Scripture? And if we read on in the passage, he goes on to say, well, there are some of these other, in the New Age movement and other things that they've identified things that we don't have in Christianity and we need to follow to that. And I'm like, okay, now you're into heresy. But notice the idea is whatever, if I just trust the Holy Spirit in me, and I would say you can trust the Holy Spirit, but he's going to point you to Scripture. And if that Spirit that is in you is pointing you to things in the New Age movement or into something else, I'm going to be like, I don't think that's the Holy Spirit, man. And what we'll notice is in places like this, the experience is emphasized above all else. Did I get a tingle in worship service? Did I get this feeling? Does it feel good? Can I say this? Does it make this person happy? And I will say we have a tendency at times to overemphasize the experience over anything. Problems. Here's the other one. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and pick on my own tribe here. But another bad view of Scripture's interpretation is what we would call solo Scriptura. This is distinct from sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is Latin for scripture alone, in the sense of like it is the ultimate authority when it comes to things of scriptural significance or of biblical, of spiritual significance. Scripture is our authority. You can't get higher than that. But there are those who hold to what we would call solo scriptura, and it's the idea that like I don't need anything for anything else. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to need my Toro time cutter manual in order to accurately change the oil on my new mower. And I'm not saying that just to be funny. I'm acknowledging that within the realm of general revelation, there are good things that have come about as a result of engineering and there is a result of the image of God rationally putting forth good things. We would even say this related to church history and theology, that there's value in the fact that at the Council of Nicaea, somebody tried to come in with a false view of Christ by twisting some words that were in Scripture. And faithful brothers, Athanasius and others, said, no, man, that's not what Scripture says, and here is our statement, our creed, that says what Scripture has already said. That's valuable. It's a helpful thing for countering error. I can't put that on the same level as Scripture, but ancient creeds and confessions have values, and there are those who would say, "Mm -mm, we're not going to allow that. And I'm like, guys, like this is... This is our church family. If put something good together here, it's okay for us to have a statement of faith. Everybody with me? Making sense? So then the question comes up, how do I know, if all scripture is God's word, how do I know that the scripture that is in my hand, I mean, technically I have an iPad in my hand, but 
there's scripture in here. Um, but if you're holding a, a, you know, a paper Bible right now and say, how do I know that this is legitimately God's word? And I recognize we're going a little academic today, but I feel like these are things that are being attacked right now, and I'm hoping I can help us by, by covering this. Is this helpful? To We're going to go into how we got scripture here. So how do we know that what we have is God's word? Well, in the Old Testament, the way that we recognize canonicity uh, is whether or not the covenant or the content that of that book was written by a legitimate prophet of God. And the New Testament, it comes down to, was that written by or directly influenced and overseen by an apostle? So in Old Testament, it's prophecy. In the New Testament, it's apostolicity, um, a term that is real. Everybody makes fun of me when I say apostolicity, but it's real. So let's carry on. Old Testament canon. When uh, In the Pentateuch, when Moses is writing the fifth book of the Bible, um, and he's giving instructions on the law. One of the things he says is, guys, there's going to be prophets show up. Some of them are going to be good. Some of them are going to be bad. And there are two criteria that are brought up for a prophet. One is mentioned in Deuteronomy 13, another one in Deuteronomy 18. But essentially what it says is if that a guy shows up and he does a legitimate sign or wonder, it could be an actual miracle. He could actually prophesy something that came true. Someone could actually get healed. A real miracle could happen. And he says, but if that prophet causes you or leads you to go after other gods, he gets the death penalty. This is how serious God took the word of God. That someone could do a real miracle, and if they led after false doctrine, they would get the death penalty. And <laughs> that would prevent them from having their, their writings included in Scripture. If we continue on in chapter 18, a similar mention is made, but here it says that, listen, they could actually teach you accurate doctrine. They could tell you everything that's right and good and be right on, but if they have a false prophe- prophecy that doesn't come true, don't listen to them. And so we have these two clear criteria. There needed to be a sign to affirm that that was a legitimate prophet. And two, he had to be in the bounds of faithful biblical orthodoxy. Making sense? And what's kind of cool is we can trace throughout all of the Old Testament, the prophets had to meet these criteria. And usually when they were writing, they would say something like, thus saith the Lord, or whatever. And we would have cues in the text that they were writing God's very word. And they kept being vetted along the way. Now, what's kind of interesting, this is some history. I hope you guys are okay with this. When Jesus comes along and he's fully God and fully man, one of the things he does is he affirms what's happening in those Old Testament scriptures. He refers to uh, the blood of, from Abel to Zechariah in Luke 11, which is how in the Old Testament, the, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament was organized with Second Chronicles being at the end, and so you have these envelopes of all the way from Abel to Zechariah. He's affirming the entirety of the Old Testament canon as he does that. Uh, similarly, we have this interesting time in which from about 420 BC, there is a cutoff in which there are no more Old Testament prophets, and there's no explanation for this. And then Jesus comes along, and Hebrews 1 seems to refer to him as the capstone of God's revelation, that you won't get any higher than Jesus. Cool. And so once we have that, Jesus, being fully God and fully man, has to be attested to. And so in the New Testament, uh, the criteria is apostolicity. 
So Jesus anointed his apostles to teach his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, John 14, and 15, and 16, and 17, he gives a commission to the apostles. And he says to them, you guys are going to be my witnesses. You need to understand this. And effectively, you are going to be the ones that tell the world about me. The apostles understood this. They function accordingly in Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 2, Galatians 1. There is this language in which the apostles are defending their apostolicity and their reference and their relationship to Christ, saying like, we were directly sent by him. And so Paul defends his apostleship. Uh, the apostles defend one another's writing and say, yep, that really is Peter. Peter really did write this. He really is an apostle. Peter writes of Paul. He really is an apostle. This is legit. This is scripture. And so throughout the New Testament, or throughout the first century, you have this passing along of all of these texts properly cited, and everybody has this agreement from early on that these 27 books are, in fact, the word of God. Another interesting thing, what we call the apostolic fathers, these would be those who actually knew the apostles, quote the New Testament books as scripture right away. And as soon as the last apostle dies, they quit citing anything else as scripture. And what we have in their writings in the church fathers is enough quotations from the New Testament that you could nearly reconstruct the New Testament simply from their quotes because they're referring to it as God's word and quoting it as such. All this making sense? Cool. We're defending the canon of scripture here. And so for 2,000 years, there's been this agreement that there are no more apostles and that the canon of scripture is closed. Without going into great detail, because this would get us into nerding out on a level that is just beyond what we need to. But in 210-ish BC, 210 to 258, we have this guy, Cyprian of Carthage, who is writing about the documentation of the New Testament. And he says, hey, if somebody wants to tell me that something is supposed to be a New Testament book, He's not using that same language. He's like, show them, show me what apostle this came from. Can you show me where, because we've already got all these 27 books. We know who they're from. We've got documentation on it. If you want to come along and say something else, you better show us the receipts. Similarly, uh, we have Tertullian, who's living around the same time. And in his uh, writings on the prescription against the heretics, he actually points out, he's like, guys, we can look at the receipts on how all this was handed down. I mean, you can say like, all right, so this was written by John. It was given to Polycarp, which was given, then he gave it to Irenaeus, and then it's been passed down bishop to bishop in this town. We know this is from John, and I can show the chain of custody all the way back to John. Not to mention, one of the really interesting things we have is that those early church fathers were actually compiling all of these texts of scripture using the same criteria of canonicity. And you have Cyprian of Carthage, who's way far away. You have Tertullian, they're hundreds of miles apart, and they write each other and say, I think it's Tertullian and Cyprian, forgive me if I've got the names wrong, but uh, they write each other and say, hey, here's the criteria we were using for scripture, and this is the 27 books of the New Testament we've got. And the guy writes back and says, we use the same criteria, we got the same 27 books, high five. And what you will see is throughout church history, both the Old Covenant and New Testament writings were convincingly agreed upon from the very beginning, brothers and sisters. And then we have this documentation throughout all of history. Now, one of the things that will show up is people will say, well, you know, Constantine decided on what scripture was going to be at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Have you guys heard this? Okay, completely false, because one of the things that was happening is, first of all, we'd already decided, it was already clear what scripture was. 
at Nicaea, they're not even talking about canon of Scripture primarily. They're talking about other things, but they do affirm. They're like, yep, we're already agreed on these things. High five. We're good. Cool. Anyway, any questions on that, let me know. But one of the things I'm trying to get to is that, like, can we see how much has gone into acknowledging and confirming what is God's very word? For crying out loud in the Old Testament, you would get the death penalty for giving a false prophecy because God cares about the canon of Scripture. In the New Testament, Paul himself even writes, if even I or someone else tried to come to you and tell you something against the gospel of Jesus Christ, let him be anathema because God cares about his word being accurate. And then when we trace it throughout history and we see how carefully it was preserved, there is no other historical document that matches it. A uh, little side note, in Underground Seminary, we go into all this in great detail, and I've already given way more information than you probably want to know today. But let me just tell you, there is nothing like it, because God wants his word to be sure to you. So when you open up the text of Scripture, you can know that those words are the words of God. Praise the Lord. There is a guy named Bart Ehrman that's going around saying, well, there's more errors in Scripture than there are words in Scripture, which is the nonsense statement. Uh, but what he actually is referring to is that if we took all of the manuscripts of, script, uh, manuscripts of Scripture, if I can say that, um, and stacked them up, counting everything up to about 800 A.D., it would stack into the air about one and a half miles. We have 1.6 million copies of New Testament documents. If you isolated all of the errors, all of what we call the variant readings, it would be about an inch and a half. So think about, out of a mile and a half's worth of documents, an inch and a half that has any type of error. Not one of those errors affects doctrine at all. There are things like word order and spelling differences and a couple of things where numbers are rounded up or down or in some cases where it appears that they're translating a number into a different number. In order to be able to do this thing with numerology, it's a whole thing, don't worry about it. But what is important is that at no point does it change anything about what God has said? When you read scripture, brothers and sisters, you know it's God's word. So let's bring up this little question. So how do I know if God is speaking to me? Right? Maybe I've got a, I've got a decision to make. I'm praying. Right? And maybe I'm, I'm in a church where people are going around and saying like, well, you know, God told me this and God told me that and God told me this. And, it, and it's like, man, I, I don't know. God doesn't talk to me like that. And I don't know about you, but I've been in, in places like that where I've been like, I feel like I'm missing out. Like God is speaking to everybody else in, in what appears to be miraculous ways, and he's not speaking to me. So I want to address this very briefly as we finish up. First of all, I think we should be cautious about using the phrase God told me. I think it is meant often in innocence, and so I'm not giving you a hard time if you use this phrase. But I, I usually use a different word because historically the language of thus saith the Lord or this is God's word, was associated with scripture. And I think most of us who say that would say, oh, no, no, this is not scripture. This is, this is God's direction for me, right? Um, we're going to talk more about this in just a second. But can we just maybe be cautious with that wording and also be gracious if somebody's like, man, I just feel like God, God told me I needed to be a pastor, right? And I, I would say, that's not bad. I, I get that. I'm just cautious with the language, cool? So be gracious if somebody is like, you know, God told me that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just supposed to keep doing this job. And I, I think probably he led them. And so don't go like swinging your hammer and be like, you heretic, false prophet. Like, please don't do that. Um, but I want to point out a few things because at times we need direction from the Holy Spirit, right? And I will say one thing that we know that the Holy Spirit does is he convicts. 
I can be reading scripture and there is something more than just the reading it that hits me and I know I have done wrong and I need to repent. That, you could say, is a work of God that might even be miraculous, but he is revealing truth to you. Conviction he does. Regeneration is where he makes us alive and we suddenly believe the truth. Right? Um, Have you ever just known something? Right? I remember when you talk to a new believer, I was a long time ago that I came to Christ, but I remember talking to new believers and they're like, you know, I just suddenly, I knew it was true. Well, I don't believe that that's some new miraculous revelation that needs to be written down in scripture. It's that God, by his regeneration, made the truth known to him. And we do believe that God can do that. I mean, I'll tell you guys, I knew I was supposed to go into ministry. I don't think, I didn't get an automatic word. I didn't get something voice from heaven. It's not scripture to write down, but God made something clear to me that I was supposed to do, right? Similarly, we have what's called illumination. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 John 2, Ephesians 4 give reference to this. It's the idea that as I am in the word of God and as I am praying, that the Holy Spirit helps me apply it directly. So there are times where it's not some new truth, it's not something new about who God is, but as I'm praying and I'm reading scripture and I'm like, you know what, I think what's clear is that this is the direction we need to go on this. And we would say illumination. I would not say that that is a new revelation from God, but that he directs. We also see where the Holy Spirit fills us, gives us spiritual fruit, praise the Lord. So if you're in this situation where you're like, I got to make this decision, trust, trust the Holy Spirit is with you. I don't expect him to give you a prophetic voice from heaven because I don't, I don't think any of us here are prophets or apostles. But can I tell you that I do believe as you are in the word, he will bring things to mind. He will make things clear. Have you ever been praying and it's like everything you were supposed to pray popped into your mind just the right time? Praise God for that. Please don't go around saying, God gave me a word that I'm supposed to pray this. I don't think that's what's happened. I don't think that's revelation. But I do think that God is directing you and he's encouraging you and he's helping you live out what he has commanded. Last couple of things here. So then if you are making decisions and you're seeking God's direction, can we just say Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. You can't mess up, brothers and sisters. If you are walking in faithfulness, you do not need a blinding light from heaven to tell you something. Unless you're the apostle Paul, um, God will direct your steps if you trust in him. And in so much as you are doing that, you will not be led astray. Similarly, in Psalm 37, 23 through 24, it says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. There is no sense in which I need a miraculous word from God other than what's in Scripture. He directs my steps. So last things here, just to... Uh, give us some resources. If you're interested in how we got scripture and you want to be built up and encouraged in this, I'll recommend the book From God to Us uh, by Geisler and Nix. It's an older book, covers some really good things. Uh, there are newer books on the topic. That one's just kind of a classic. There's a lot really good, a lot more good data we have access to in manuscripts now, which is really cool. The other one is Explaining Biblical Inerrancy by Geisler, and that's supposed to say Sproul. I spelled it wrong, sorry. Uh, the other thing I would recommend is check out the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and Inspiration. Uh, I'm sorry, and Interpretation. Uh, that is the, the statement that came out in response to liberalism related to textual criticism and other things. We hold to that as a church. Great one. If you want to get even more nerdy, um, there is a podcast called Facts, which is short for Fathers, Apocryphal, Canon, T. 
text in Scripture with Stephen Boyce goes into like the documentation of the Old Testament. I'm sorry, of the New Testament. Great stuff, recommend it. And then dividing line with James Light, very similar, good stuff. All right. So that was just a lot. Are you guys still with me? Yes. Middle school. Yeah. I'd have to think about that, brother. For middle school. Um, yeah, I'd have to think about that. Um, honestly, one of those podcasts would, would get you there, but it'd still be pretty heavy. I'll have to think through on that. That's a good question. Um, cool. Uh, could I just say that was that was a lot of information. Sorry, I put together a whole lot. Hopefully you all hung with it. Yeah. Should we go back one slide? Yeah. Noah, you want to go back one slide? Uh, forward now one. Yeah. Can I, can I just say, my goal today was for you to understand what Scripture says about itself and give you a little bit of church history that you can acknowledge the faith we have that what we have is indeed God's Word. And then beyond that, to understand so high is the criteria for what is God's Word um, that I can now have a criteria. If someone tells me, hey, I have a prophecy for you, Dan, and you are to dot, 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 I can weigh that out and I can check things out. Um, that's part of my goal here. All right, so what does this have to do with the gospel? Somebody tell me. How does this relate? Actually, maybe better this. What does this say about God? The scripture is the ultimate authority. He has not left us flying blind, has he? He has given us his very word, and he has left no doubt about it. Um, What does this say about us? Right on, brother. Yeah. I would maybe also draw attention in the first Timothy chapter three and four, where people will have a tendency to not want to subject themselves to faithful doctrinal teaching. Um, and we all have a tendency to go after teachers that will affirm our pleasures. I'm watching out for that. Um, cool. All right. How does this relate to the gospel? Indeed, brother. Indeed. All right. Who is on for the gospel today? Go for it, man. 